That's good to celebrate what God has done in our life and wants to do in our life. To love, be loved, and to love out loud. In that thought, I'd like to talk about two enemies of love, unbelief and fear. We're going to go in our text to Hebrews chapter 4, read verses 1 through 13 and study that text. You know, it's amazing what Scripture tells us in not to be afraid of. You see time and time again, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. And it really is astounding and hard not to be afraid and all that the Bible and God asks us not to be afraid of. That was the word to Joshua when he was to lead the armies into the land of giants. Do not fear. Take courage. You see that repeated. David professed that though an army should encamp against me, I will not fear. Though the earth would fall out from underneath me, I will not fear because he is with me. That's amazing. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? If uh, China, India, Russia all ganged up on us, <laughs> could you see calls for fear? But though that happens, the Bible says, do not fear because God is with us. I think about my own personal fears. What, what's your personal fear? It wasn't too long ago. I, I woke up in the middle of the night with a nightmare. Uh, and I, in my dream, had one of my daughters running on an extremely high bridge that had no rails. I told her, do not run. But she did and tripped and fell on the side where she was just barely on the edge And in my nightmare, I could do nothing but watch her fall. And I could hear her crying when she hit the ground. And I woke up. And I thought, God, what if that was to happen? That is a fear that comes out in my dreams. And, and you know, you you hear something like that, and you think, that's terrible. I can see why you would wake up. And yet, somehow, Scripture says... Be anxious for nothing, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, the peace of God, which pass all understanding will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus our Lord. And I ask, really? Wow. That's a hard thing. What is it you're afraid of when the doctor calls you and says, come in? We need to do further testing. And your heart melts. And yet, David says, though an army encamps against me, though the earth will fall, I will not fear. How can that be? When Jesus says, do not fear the one who can just merely kill you. (laughs) I remember just recently being inspired by a testimony of a, a Romanian pastor who wrote hymns, hundreds of hymns. And preached the word of God, was threatened, and still held true. And thus, he was arrested, taken away from his wife and little baby boy to be put in prison for over ten years. 
and then released to see his boy, now a teenager, and his wife dealing without him for all that time. And I asked myself, wow, could I do that? And I could not help but admit that a little bit of fear came into my life because I can see the day when that could happen here in America. Fear. It's amazing all the things that the Bible tells us. Do not be afraid. It is for this reason, when I come to Hebrews chapter 4, I take special note when it tells you, fear this. Fear this. (laughs) If I'm not to be afraid when a daughter falls from the bridge, if I'm not to be afraid when a doctor calls me and tells me that my life may end, if I'm not to be afraid when I have may be under threat to be arrested, if I'm not to be afraid the armies encamp against me, if I'm not to be afraid though the earth quakes underneath me, what on earth is it that the Bible says to be afraid of? Well, let's read this together and you can find out. Hebrews chapter 4. Let's read verses 1 through 13. In honor of this passage being the Word of God, let's stand as you read silently and I'll read aloud to you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he points a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. To whom we must give an account. You must be seated. My task this morning is to make sense to you this text that could possibly be one of the more complicated passages that you might read and try to help you uh, understand this. Uh, I think a key, some things to keep in mind. Key number one, the author was written, writing this letter, this sermon, if you will, to Jews who were being tempted to leave their faith in Christ and go back to the old system of the sacrifice temple system. And he is writing this to encourage them to stay strong, do not leave Christ, do not waver in their faith, 
that it is devastating to forsake Christ. The second key that I think is helpful here is found in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. In that passage, it is a quotation. David, or uh, the Hebrew writer, is quoting from Psalm 95, verse 7 through 11. And what you find after that quote is kind of a, a popular tradition among the Jews in the Midrash form. They would give a running commentary of what they just quoted. And so that is what the writer is doing. You'll note that there are various words in this quotation in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 3 that is elaborated on afterwards. Whether it's the word today or whether it's the word hard, uh, hardened heart or swear or rest as in what we'll be talking today. And so what you've got in chapter 4 is an explanation of that quotation. What does it mean to rest? Alright, so just keep that in mind as we go. Now, Psalm 95 is actually a further quote or further allusion to a much earlier event. You remember the story of Moses leading the people out of Egypt, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments, all that, going into the Promised Land. And uh, he is alluding back to that time when these people were getting exposed to the Word of God, to the very character of God, the power of God, through all those plagues and miracles, yet... Knowing that, witnessing that, they still did not believe the promises of God. And when it came time to go to the promised land, they said, we can't do that. And they were afraid. Therefore, God said, fine, I will not let you go into the promised land. And one day, your children will go. And so, Psalm 95 is making reference to that event. All right? All this is very important. Because of what the author is saying is just like those people did way back then with Moses and Joshua, we too are very similar in following Jesus. And whatever mistakes they made, we must not repeat those same mistakes, alright? And so, that's the thought behind Hebrews chapter 4. Now, he says right from the beginning, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, we're going to have to figure out What does this rest mean? Alright? Now, in helping us understand this, there are several references to rest. I I don't know about you, but I love a good rest. I was raised, taught by my parents to take naps. Um, It was something enforced upon me. I resisted for many years. And when I was finally old enough to make a choice of my own, amazingly enough, I chose to take a nap. And after lunch, given the opportunity, I still would make that choice. Uh, I don't often get to do that as much as I did. I don't know how that occurred. But believe you me, on Sunday afternoons, I believe it is set apart, sanctified for napping. Um, and nothing better to me than eating a good meal, wearing myself out on a Sunday morning here, and then just collapsing with the sound of football in the background. Um, that is a good day, you know. And every once in a while, that doesn't happen. And I get a little afraid uh, when those happens. Uh, and, 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 you know, we're, we're thinking about Thanksgiving, but to be honest, some of you men, are you not thinking about after the meal? Uh-huh, whatever team's playing, dishes are done, 
we're all just resting. That's a wonderful time. It's a holiday, holy day, okay? Um, well, so we see this and we think, wow, rest. This sounds good. I want to enter this rest, okay? And so he uses this image for a reason. It is something that we look forward to. Uh, but it's not just the um, napping aspect where we are doing nothing, but is a sense of completion, a sense of completion, all right? So the first reference, or the earliest reference he makes is found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, okay? He uh, alludes to this in this passage when he says uh, earlier in, or uh, somewhere it was spoken that in, in verse 4, that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now he's quoting Genesis 2, verse 2, but keep in mind, they didn't have 2, verse 2, when the Hebrew writer was writing. So he says somewhere in scripture it says this. Uh, we, he does not have that same reference that you and I are used to with the numerical system there. And he says, back in the beginning, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, what does, what does that mean? Does that mean that God's taking a forever nap? All right. Does it mean that after six days he was so worn out, he said, man, you know, I just need a good nap. Let's take the seventh day and nap. That's not the, the, uh, the meaning. What he's saying is that in six days, he completed the task. There was no more need anymore to do further work. Now, what was the state after six days in the Bible about the creation? Well, the state was simply everything was made that needed to be made. Uh, Tell you what, let's let's switch over here if we if you don't mind. Uh, and then, okay. And then uh, everything was made that was made. Man was made without sin. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter one and chapter two that there was a mandate. They were to go into the earth and to fill and subdue this earth. All right. Now understand, man was not like man is today. Man walked with God. They were made in the very image of God, I believe, were um, representative in the likeness of Christ himself in, his, in their character. So when God says, subdue this earth and fill it, he is indeed filling it with the image of himself, with the Christ likeness spread throughout Adam and Eve and all who would come after. And so God said, this is good. And he completed the task. Nothing more to be done. Of course, man messed it up and sinned and distorted the image of Christ. And we just have now the capacity to get to know Christ and be like Christ now. It's up to us as was to whether or not we're going to trust God for that to do that work. All right. So that's the first reference of rest. And then we find as we read this passage that he makes another reference. And that is going from Egypt into the promised land. He says, there is a rest provided for you. Uh, there is a place you can go where you can get away from the sin of Egypt, where you can worship God, where you can serve me, and we can have a special relationship. But when the time came for them to obey God and to tackle the giants, they said no. And therefore God swore they shall not enter his rest. The third reference to rest we find in this text when he's referencing actually Joshua and saying that there was a time uh, in the next generation where Joshua would come and would lead them into the promised land. All right. And so interesting enough, 
the word Joshua is the same sound as where we get the word Jesus. And in fact, I think maybe you're, if you have King James, it might say the word Jesus, but in fact is referencing Joshua. Uh, it says, you know, Joshua delivered you into the promised land as a reference to Jesus, who will one day also do that with us, bring us to a place of what we call spiritual rest. But David, in Psalm 95, references back to that time and uses this, firm, uh, this phrase, today, today, if you enter God's rest. And what he says, since David brings that up thousands of years later after Joshua, there is a rest yet to be experienced that the Joshua's generation did not experience. And he's saying in Hebrews 4, this rest is available to you. Has something to do with belief. And it is something that you can enjoy now, but yet there is a further anticipation of. So that means people today can experience partially the rest that God has in mind, but yet will one day experience fully the rest. Now, what, what does that mean, the rest? Here's what I would take this to mean. The rest that God is providing is the same rest mentioned in Genesis 2. That you can be in the likeness of Christ. That your character can be conformed to Christ. And that you can experience that partially now through God's work in your life. But there will be a day and time when we will shed this body in selfishness and sin that uh, seems to be filled in this earth. And that it will be completely made in the image of Christ. And it uses the terminology rest because it's not something that you do. It is something that God does in you. Do you follow me here? It is a completed task that God will do in your life to make you more like him. So we are born hungry spiritually. We're born wanting joy. We're born wanting peace. We're born, born wanting significance and to make a difference in the life of this world. We have this desire in, our, in ourselves. We're born wanting to be loved and to love. And we fill and we search our life trying to satisfy in various means and methods these heart cravings. They're heart cravings because God made you in his image. And they're not satisfied until you believe that God will do that in your life. That he will give you love. That he will give you joy. That he will give you a peace, a kindness. That he will give you significance. That he will give you love. And you believe it. You trust in it. You no longer strive in your business. Strive in relationships. Strive in your appearances to get this anymore. It is a rest that God has for you. Do you understand that? I want having that explanation there. I think we can look better now at the text. Let's look at it. He says, verse one. Therefore, the while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Unfortunately, the NIV translates that as be careful. That is not what the text says. It's not be careful. It is to be afraid. It is not just a reverence. 
It is as what the word commonly is understood. If you ever have nightmares, let your nightmares be about this. What? Well, that you do not enter this rest, that you fail to reach it. How does this happen? Well, verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them. Who's the them? The people of Moses' generation. The good news came to us just like they did in Moses' time. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So what is it that we are to be afraid of? We are to fear unbelief. We are to fear unbelief that when hearing the message of the gospel, we do not believe it. That, according to the Bible, should be what fills our mind with nightmares. Is that we would wake up in Colts West to think that I do not believe God. Isn't that interesting? All the things the Bible says to be afraid of, he says, be afraid of this, that you do not believe God. So, verse 2, what was the good news? That word good news is literally gospel. What was the gospel preached to Moses' day? Well, let me share with you some texts. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. In other words, I will make you, if you will just believe me, I will make you like how I originally made you before the fall. I will make you so you will be in the image of Christ and you will be as a nation of priests, a set apart nation. And this is good news to the people to say that your heart cravings will be satisfied if you just believe this word. In Exodus 34 verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What was the good news found in this text? The simple message is that there is mercy and love and forgiveness that though you feel unworthy, God says he will give you forgiveness and he will make you into his people. But rest assured, if you do not believe God, there will be judgment that awaits. That was a good news. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 8 and 9. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is moved from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And the sad tragedy is that though they heard this good news, it was not received with belief. So instead of fearing unbelief, they feared the giants in the land more than their unbelief. And so God gives them over to their desires. He says, okay, you don't want this? then I will not give it to you. So, I want to share with you why we are to fear unbelief. Simply from this example, unbelief precludes rest. What does that mean? If you do not believe God, you will never be changed into the image of Christ. 
If you do not trust in God, listen, as we see in, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, every disobedient act has its heart in unbelief. When we ongoingly, ongoing resist God and do not follow what God asks, it's because we simply do not believe God in that matter. Been struggling and thinking through procrastination a little bit the last few weeks. And uh, it's not just an a, um, inconvenient activity. As I've thought through and asked myself about why is it in some things I procrastinate. I came to the sad realization that it is because simply whatever task God has given me to do, I do not believe. I do not believe that it will give me satisfaction. And so I choose more entertaining alternatives, how I define entertaining alternatives. Easier task. And I tell myself, I will do this. It's just for a little bit, then I'll get to the task. But I found at the heart of procrastination is simply that I did not believe God that I would find satisfaction in the task that he gave me. And that, you know, I, I just didn't call it procrastination because it just, even as bad as that sounds, that sounds a whole lot better than the fact that I just don't believe God. Under the heart of every disobedient act is something that you do not believe God for. If you find that your heart is wandering from your spouse, it is because you do not believe that God says, I will give you satisfaction if you just obey my commands and stay true to your mate. If you find that you have a tendency to lie, it is because that you do not believe that God will accept you as you are, though faulty, and that for you to feel better about life, you've got to look better in front of people, even if it's not true. And you do not believe God. And so he says, beware unbelief. Beware unbelief. It will preclude you out of rest. It will preclude you out of being changed into the image of Christ that you can experience. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. Here's the good news. You can have joy. You can have forgiveness. You can have peace. You can have love and, and all these things that you desire in your life. That can be yours. And it's not because you try real hard. It's not because you go to church all the time. It's not because you read the Bible all the time. It's not because you pray diligently every day. It simply is because you believe God. That is amazing because anybody can believe God. You don't have to be Olympian. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. Anybody can believe God. Therefore, anyone can be changed into the image of Christ. Therefore, anyone can experience this rest that God is promising. And so verse 3 as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And so he goes on and elaborates what I've already explained to you, the various stages of rest. But notice verse 6, that those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. You see, disobedience flows out of unbelief. Notice Genesis or Hebrews 3.19, just a little bit before this. This disobedience flows from unbelief. Verse 7. 
Again, he appoints a certain day today. Now he's referring back to Psalm 95, how David still says that today this rest is available to you. That this speaks not to just Joshua's age in verse 8, not just to Moses' day, not just the days of creation, but it speaks in David's day and also speaks to us as well. So, verse 9, here's the conclusion of the argument he's bringing. So then therefore remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 10, he explains that. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In other words, we can experience partially this rest and I can, be start, I can start to have a change in my life, in my heart that occurs on a daily basis because I believe God and I trust that what Jesus did on the cross was enough. I don't have to add to the cross. And what Jesus did. And someone says, you know what? Do you believe that you have eternal life? I do. I do not hope. I do not wish. I do believe. Because simply everything required for me to have eternal life occurred when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. I do not wonder whether or not I'm going to be good enough. I do not wonder whether or not that I have enough discipline. Because my rest My eternal life does not depend on my discipline, but it depends on Jesus, and I rest in that. However, this text makes very careful that the perseverance in our faith validates our conversion experience. Conversion to Christ, submitting to Christ, surrendering to Him at one time in our life, does not excuse us to a life of rebellion and sin. Do you get that? Just because you walked down an aisle, just because you were baptized, just because one time in your life you prayed to ask Jesus Christ in your life and to forgive you of your sin does not excuse you to say, I can do whatever I want, I can live whatever way I want. That is abuse of the grace of God and it is not what the Bible teaches. Our perseverance in the faith validates The completed work of Christ in our life. Now, we keep on reading. Verse 10. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. I think now is a good time to mention a few things that Jesus said. Matthew chapter chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, in the midst of debates as whether or not you should keep the Sabbath and, and to follow all the ceremonial rules, Jesus says this. Come to me. All who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What does that mean, rest? Well, as I said, it is to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Notice what Jesus goes on and says. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What your soul is striving for, laboring for, what it desires, and you try to find in your mate, try to find satisfaction in your children, try to find satisfaction in your job and how you appear and you look and your dress and your money. He says it will wear you out and you will never get what you want. Instead, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Submit to me and be conformed to my image and you'll find what you were looking for the rest 
Just a few verses later, Matthew 12, verse 6 through 8, Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and that sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Do you remember what the word Sabbath means? Rest. The Son of Man is Lord of rest. Stop your striving. Stop your efforts and trust and believe God and submit to Him. Colossians 2.9, For in Him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. When we become made in the image of Christ, we are fully made in the image of God. And God says, it is good. It is good when that occurs. Verse 11, Because of all that, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. What does that mean? You know, we have a, a, joke, a joke about that with our home and, and my dad growing up. We joke, hurry up, hurry up, hurry We got to rest. I mean, in our desire to take a nap, we would hurry up, get home from church, eat lunch, and as quickly as possible, hurry up and let's, let's rest. There's a satisfaction of laying down and pulling the covers up. Oh. Well, what he's saying is, hurry up and trust in God. And do you understand you do have to strive to trust in God? Because the enemy is within us that constantly is raging against trusting God. We always want to do things by our merit. We want to be part of things. And we are constantly uh, struggling with living life in, for our sakes. And that it will all point and lift ourselves up. And that we'll be the main character of our life. And that all things will point to us. And this is something that we fight with daily in ourselves. And so therefore we have to strive. There is an effort to say it's not about me. I will trust in Christ. This is what forms our continual prayers. That even as I'm speaking here this morning, that there is a prayer within me that says, God, save me from myself. Save me. Give me grace that it's not about me. Help me to keep you foremost in my heart, in my mind, and in my mouth. It is a constant prayer that believers will pray. And so we strive to enter that rest. We fear unbelief so that no one may fall by that same sort of disobedience. John 15, Jesus says this in verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And then, the idea is that we have experienced rest, but as we see in verse 11, we are still striving to enter that rest. We've experienced it partially, but we want to experience it fully. I think about what the text says in Romans 8.23. That not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. What does that mean? That there will be a day and time when this body that is filled with sin and selfish desires will be done away. And God gives us a new body that is reflective of the Spirit of Christ. That will happen when the pains and disease and sickness of nature will be corrected. Now, fear unbelief. Why? 
because unbelief precludes rest. But listen, we go on and we see verse 12, a second reason why unbelief, why we're to fear unbelief. And that is simply this. Unbelief will be discovered. Unbelief will be discovered. Verse 12, the tool that is used is the word of God. This corresponds again with uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, when it says the voice of God today, if you hear his voice. And so he says the voice, that voice is the word of God. It is not just the written text that is before you, but how God has spoken throughout time. God is speaking, and when he speaks, it is a force in creation. It is living, and it is acting, active. In other words, when I read the word of God, when God's speaking to my heart, I don't have to get God up to date with all my questions and concerns. God knows it already, and I am amazed constantly how when I read the text and I read the word of God and I'm seeking God to speak to my heart, God will answer a question, a doubt, a fear in my heart that I've told no one. How does that happen in a written document? Because within that written document... And filling in the entirety of that written document is the voice of God. And that voice is living and active. And is sharper than two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I don't want to go into the differences between all these things, but what I want to bring out is that what man considers indivisible, the word of God divides. Why is that important? Because we learned in chapter 3 that sin can deceive you. Sin can deceive you. I walk in deceiving myself constantly, but the word of God brings light to me so that I will no longer live in deceiving myself, thinking that I'm better than I really am. And the word of God exposes me for who I am. It has that ability. Sin whispers through the desires of the flesh, Whispers through the rationalizations of our mind. It tells us that our only hope of future happiness is to have an abortion. It whispers that you will not have a chance in the future if you don't cheat on this test. It says you won't be noticed unless you dress provocatively. It says you will lose that one person who seems to like you and love you and care for you if you don't compromise your sexual standards. It says... You won't have job security if you speak up about those dishonest practices at work. It says and whispers your life will be wasted in this relationship if you don't get a divorce. It says that a fool will only go on looking weak instead of getting some kind of revenge. The the rationalizations of our mind, the soft, seductive whispers, it deceives us. And the word of God divides between the deceptions of our hearts. Now, why else do we fear unbelief? Not only because unbelief will preclude rest, only because unbelief will be exposed. But in verse 13, unbelief will be judged. Unbelief will be judged. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must Give an account. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto men once to die, then the judgment. The simple thought behind this is that we will be held accountable for unbelief. You think, well, well what about you know, so-and-so is murdering? Someone murdered somebody. 
What about that guy that killed that five-year-old? And the mom that sold her in prostitution. Seems like God ought to be busy with them. Instead of we little me, I'm a pretty good person for the most part. Let me just say that at the heart of murder, the heart of selling your children, is unbelief. Unbelief. The same thing you and I are guilty of also. When we sin and whatever white lie or insignificant lie that we tell ourselves. And what God is interested in is do you exalt his character? Do you love him? And do you express it by saying, I believe God when he says whatever he says? That's at the heart. When I read this text, it says simply, what should fill my nightmare is that I come to realize I don't believe God. It will preclude me from being like Christ, not only today, but for eternity. And it is that which will be exposed. And if it is in my heart, the best thing that could happen is for us to pray, God, expose my unbelief. Take me away from the double life. When I am a cynic and I don't believe you, God. But I know it's not proper and correct to talk like that. So I will talk like what people think I should talk like. But we live a double life. The best thing that could happen is for us to be united by repentance. And to say in these hidden recesses of my heart, let unbelief be exposed. And God, give me grace that I would believe in you. It's better to be exposed today than for eternity. Because the last thing that should fill our heart with fear is unbelief that will be judged by God. When it's all said and done and our actions are brought before God, the actions are just symptomatic of the one huge treason act, and that is we did not believe God. Because we preferred Darkness and our ways over him. Take the examples of the Israelites and believe God. That is the word of warning that still speaks today. Do not harden your hearts. Let us pray.